Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Hunter Biden's plea agreement falling apart, Rudy Giuliani conceding he made defamatory charges against election workers in Georgia, General Flynn and Peter Navarro calling for civil war while blaming it on the Democrats, and the expectation that a third indictment against Trump for January the 6th could come as early as tomorrow, Thursday. Joining us is Adam Klasfeld, a senior legal correspondent at The Messenger, who was previously the managing editor at Law and Crime, and a reporter for Courthouse News Service. We will discuss his latest articles at The Messenger, Trump's legal team braces for conviction by a D.C. jury before he's even indicted, and Trump Indictment Watch brings sense of deja vu to D.C. federal courthouse. Then we'll look into President Biden's proposed new rules ensuring mental health parity in insurance coverage as addiction and mental illness remain untreated across the country where mental health services are lacking or non-existent. Joining us is Dr. Alan Francis, a professor emeritus and former chair of psychiatry and behavioral science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller Saving Normal and the reference work Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, a psychiatrist analyzes the age of Trump, now out in an updated paperback version. Then finally, we will examine the growing examples of capitalism without democracy in autocracies like Russia and China, with a focus on Saudi Arabia, where a techno-autocracy headed by a macabre murderer is, with unlimited oil money, is creating giga-projects like Vision 2030, while hiding the poverty within his country. Joining us is Quinn Slobodian, a professor of history at Wellesley College, where he teaches histories of modern Europe, international history, social movements, and the intellectual history of neoliberalism. He's the author of Globalists, The End of Empire, and the Birth of Neoliberalism. And his latest book is Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. We will discuss his article at the New Statesman, How Saudi Arabia is Buying the World. And joining us now is Adam Klasfeld, who's a senior legal correspondent at The Messenger, who was previously the managing editor at Law and Crime and a reporter for Courthouse News Service. His latest articles at The Messenger are Trump's legal team braces for conviction by a D.C. jury before he's even indicted, and the Trump indictment watch brings sense of deja vu to D.C. federal courthouse. Welcome to Background Briefing, Adam Klasfeld. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Adam. And um, I'd like to get a kind of <laughs> summary of what's going on with all of the legal activity surrounding Trump and people in Trump's orbit, like Rudy Giuliani, who just conceded that he'd made defamatory statements uh, about the Georgia election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss. And that's ahead of, I guess he's trying to resolve a lawsuit against him hoping to avoid criminal sanctions. There was also confusing behavior today at the federal court in Delaware where Hunter Biden was supposed to accept his plea deal and apparently, I don't know whether the government hadn't uh, dotted the I's and crossed the T's or or his side hadn't done the same, but apparently he withdrew from the deal because it wasn't what he thought they'd agreed to. And then on top of that, Although it's somewhat unrelated, today Senator Mitch McConnell was doing a, his weekly press conference 
And he suddenly froze in front of the camera for the longest time. And the senators around him, the Republican senators around him, had to sort of, they were quite alarmed and they sort of took him away. But that was shocking in itself. But so let's start with Hunter Biden. What do you make of that? So my colleagues were on the ground in Delaware uh, for that proceeding. And from the accounts coming uh, forward, it seemed to be on again, off again. Uh, there seemed to be a bit of a disconnect, uh, their reporting, between the side's understanding of the plea agreement and how expansive it was, uh, whether or not it would immunize him from any future investigation, from any potential FARA investigation. And, you know, in federal courts, there are not, uh, it's very common that you cannot bring electronics in the courtroom. So we would get these updates piecemeal, uh, where it seemed all of a sudden all bets are off and then all of a sudden they're back on again. So it seems that the stories, they, basically both sides need to get together, uh, agree upon the scope of the deal, and it seems we'll be uh, back again before there's any resolution. So the other, I mean, I'm just going through the list of stuff that I wanted to touch base with you on, uh, Adam. Yesterday, Peter Navarro, who himself is facing charges, uh, I think in September, he basically uh, warned that there was a civil war brewing if any moves were made against Trump, particularly a third indictment. And he said, quote, do you not understand that the longer you engage, talking to the Democrats, who is blaming for this. Do you not understand the longer you engage in your assaults on American families and values, the more likely a new civil war becomes? And do you not understand that the perverse precedents you are creating through your weaponizing bureaucracies and woke attacks will come back to haunt you as soon as the Republicans take back Trump's America from your cold, woke hands? Similar uh, threats came from General Flynn, how serious is the legal profession and those engaged in in these cases against Trump? What's your reading on that? Uh, are they worried? Uh, is Jack Smith and others worried? Because it only takes one lone wolf. Well, you know, I think that this escalating rhetoric is always factored into the security situation. I was there right before the first uh, Trump indictment. That didn't happen in any federal court. It happened in the criminal court in Lower Manhattan in the hush money case. And I remember that the security was very intense. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know how many news cycles ago, even though it is just a short time ago, but people may remember the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, received a threatening note with an unidentified white powder that, uh, you know, turns out to have been uh, nothing serious inside it. The, the substance was analyzed. But things were tense in lower Manhattan in the lead up to the indictment. But when all was said and done, it was assessed into the security situation, the security landscape, and his arraignment went off without a hitch. Same thing when everything happened in the documents case in Southern Florida. Uh, folks were worried about how uh, Trump supporters would react. But I mean, so far, and this seems to be a, a pattern, federal courts, state courts, wherever all of these events are unfolding, they are assessing the situation, they are bracing for it, and they're getting it under control. 
So let's turn to your article, Trump's legal team braces for conviction by DC jury before he's even indicted. What are you hearing from the legal team? So it's a very interesting thing. You know, as that headline notes, it was very striking to us that this person very close to Trump's legal team who has advised Trump uh, had essentially said that, and this was the words that this person used, that it would be a layup for prosecutors and specifically talking about that it's a a jurisdiction, Washington, D.C., that voted overwhelmingly by for Joe Biden, that it was, uh, I think, lower than six percent were Trump voters. And that was this person's reasoning. Now, I should add, uh, we had in Washington, D.C., quite recently, the seditious conspiracy trials of the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys. And despite the fact that Washington, D.C. is, of course, uh, a deep blue jurisdiction. Uh, the jurors gave a delivered a mixed verdict. They uh, there were convictions on certain seditious conspiracy counts, but not others. So, I, you know, whether one can make sweeping uh, generalized statements about the D.C. jury, I'd look at recent history. But the fact that Team Trump is already preparing Uh, bracing for a guilty verdict before we have an indictment, before anyone uh, knows uh, whether, when, and with what he will be charged, uh, is something that was very striking and something that we examined in the article. Uh, Also, bits about about legal strategy, arguments that they could make, including First Amendment arguments, our arguments about the jury pool that I mentioned earlier uh, were front and center in a number of January 6th related cases where defendants wanted to transfer the case out of D.C. to other jurisdictions. I will note, and we noted in the article, all of those efforts failed with the judges in the district essentially saying, you can impanel a fair and impartial jury here. This is why we have the voir dire process. This is why we have uh, at the measures for jury selection. Uh, so those efforts in the past have failed, but it is telling about what folks close to what Trump's legal team is thinking, the arguments they will make, uh, the uh, the fact that the uh, First Amendment Defense is under discussion. Uh, It has a bit of a history in the District of D.C. and related civil litigation. So the article gives a kind of a full view about what's being talked about inside Trump legal world right now. So the charges that we know about are witness tampering and attempting to defraud the United States, which is likely about Trump's collection of fake elector certificates, which um, he pressed Vice President Mike Pence to adopt in order to subvert the Electoral College. But the other one seems to be a pretty solid one. i get your opinion on this. And that is the violation of Section 241 of Title 18 of the U.S. Code, which makes it a crime to conspire to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person in the free exercise or enjoyment of any right or privilege secured to him by the Constitution or laws of the United States. And this was originally used against the Ku Klux Klan during Reconstruction. 
And fundamentally, Section 241 prohibits any attempt to prevent, alter, dilute, or nullify a vote. And so how did... uh, How does uh, that measure up against Trump's activity? I mean, we all heard him on the call saying, give me 11,780 votes, so count the ways. Right, right. Well, one of the things that was immediately striking to me about that reporting out of the New York Times, uh, that that was a statute mentioned in the Target letter, according to that reporting, is that there is related civil litigation under the KKK Act right now against Donald Trump. And that case survived dismissal, uh, that it's a case that was, as I understand it before, uh, U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta, who was the judge who oversaw the uh, seditious conspiracy cases against the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. And that was a case where, as I mentioned earlier, Trump raised this First Amendment uh, defense that he was making these statements that concerned the election, that the statements themselves had First Amendment protection. At least at this stage of the litigation, the federal judge let the case proceed. That they uh, that the judge found that he was plausibly in violation with of the civil equivalent of this Reconstruction Era law. So as soon as I read that reporting, uh, just having covered that civil lawsuit that's still in the same court where uh, I and other reporters are waiting for news of an indictment, uh, that litigation is still going on. So I think that those cases will get broader national attention if those charges are indeed pursued by the grand jury. Uh, And one thing that I'll say about that in terms of Trump's defense, uh, he is going to he seems to be primed to argue that this is a pretty novel uh, use of the law in terms of that it hasn't been deployed in a similar way, in a similar case. Um, And we might learn a little bit more about the criminal analog of this law, its use, its history, and whether if it is indeed very rarely charged, uh, whether it's because we had this unprecedented attack on the U.S. Capitol. But just to touch on his First Amendment defense, specifically on this unprecedented attack on the U.S. Capitol, we all saw the video of him making that speech after Giuliani and uh, Eastman also riled up the crowd. So is he going to make the argument that that was just his First Amendment right, that was just musings, when there was a clear purpose to his speech directing those people to go to the Capitol? So this is where I find that the case that I mentioned earlier, the civil litigation in the January 6th case, to be very interesting. If you look at the judge's opinion, it's Judge Mehta, the same judge from the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys trials. He draws a very clear distinction between Trump's speech and Giuliani's speech. And it's very interesting because he actually eliminated Giuliani as a defendant in this civil litigation. But where he thought that the two were very different was that Trump's uh, exhortation to the crowd that uh, you have to fight like hell, and if you don't fight like hell, you won't have a country anymore, is followed by, so we are going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. 
And for the judge, that met the test, the Brandenburg test established by the Supreme Court of imminent lawless action, or at least plausibly did, to get the case to proceed to the discovery process. Uh, So that ruling, uh, though, again, in a civil matter in a very different context, really shows the arguments that despite the very broad protections that the U.S. enjoys for free speech, uh, that simply advocating, as Giuliani did, uh, saying, uh, let's have trial by combat, when it wasn't coupled with an exhortation, walk down Pennsylvania Avenue, that, that was the difference that made Trump's case in the eyes of this judge pat, vault that hurdle and made uh, Rudy Giuliani's case not do so. So it will be a very uh, interesting battle about the limits of the very expansive protections of free speech that the United States enjoys. That's in the category of crying fire in a crowded theater, right? Well, it, it's interesting because there, uh, if you speak to a lot of First Amendment experts, even crying, uh, shouting fire in a crowded theater that was a sort of um, uh, image that was in complicated by a subsequent Supreme Court decision. And there are First Amendment experts who will say, yes, you can shout fire in a crowded theater if the theater is in fact on fire. Uh, that's how wow. and, and wow. pointing out all of the exceptions. And that's wow. the really interesting thing about First Amendment jurisprudence that we have such robust protections for First Amendment conduct, but there's a limit. Well, Adam Klasfeld, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, Abby, speaking with Adam Klasfeld, who's a senior legal correspondent at The Messenger, who was previously the managing editor at Law and Crime and a reporter for Courthouse News Service. His latest articles at The Messenger include Trump's legal team braces for conviction by a D.C. jury before he's even indicted, and Trump Indictment Watch brings sense of deja vu to D.C. Federal Courthouse. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking into President Biden's proposed new rules ensuring mental health parity in insurance coverage as addiction and mental illness remain untreated across the country where mental health services are lacking or non-existent. Right 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Alan Francis, who's a professor emeritus and the former chair of psychiatry and behavioral science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference work, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump, now out in an updated paperback version. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Alan Francis. Well, Ian, always a great pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, and, and we're not going to talk about Trump, which I think will be music to the ears of a lot of our listeners. But instead, um, I wanted to get your opinion on, on what uh, President Biden announced yesterday, where he pledged that mental health care is health care, and He's introducing a new proposed rule that would reinforce the 2008 Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act by requiring insurance providers to update health plans to make sure people have equivalent access between their mental health and medical benefits. And he went on to say, if you break an arm, you go to the doctor, your insurance usually pays. Why is it so much harder to get health insurance to pick up the tab if you have a mental health breakdown? So... What is the answer to Biden's question, um, Dr. Francis? Well, I think in one way what he's doing is absolutely wonderful. In another way, it comes up short. But let me do the wonderful part first. That um, until about 30 years ago, about 10% of medical uh, expenditures in this country were for mental health. And now it's under 4%. There are two two complex reasons for this, but the, the, the one that Biden is trying to address now is the fact that insurance companies have made it almost impossible to get mental health coverage. They're so difficult in the bureaucracy that you have to go through and that doctors have to go through before you get covered that many patients will never even um, try to get help because it's so complicated or they'll give up in trying to get help. Many doctors won't even take private insurance because the amount of uh, bureaucratic red tape is so extensive. And so uh, by making it so difficult to get the coverage that the law requires them to provide, they wind up not providing the coverage that actually they're being paid for because their premiums are based on the idea that they're going to be giving that coverage. And many people just give up. Many doctors have just given up on the system. And it's wonderful after all this time that the Biden administration is taking this step forward. Well, I think a big part of uh, what Biden's talking about in terms of mental health is also addiction, is it not? Both for young and older people. Yeah, I think that the um, the current situation is particularly scary. There used to be about 40,000 overdose deaths a year in the United States, and now it's well over 100,000 and climbing steadily. Uh, the fault for this enormous increase in overdose deaths goes very much to the Sacklers, the Sackler family that promoted OxyContin and got our country addicted on very powerful um, narcotic medications that should not have been given out medically in the first place. And now the uh, spread of these medications to the street drug market has been just enormous. And fentanyl is 50 times more powerful than heroin, very cheap to make, very cheap to export to, into, the, into this country from other places. And so we have this terrible um, epidemic of drug addiction. 
and of accidental deaths because the fentanyl is contaminating almost every street drug in all parts of the country. So that treatment um, is, is absolutely necessary. Interdiction has failed. The war on drugs has failed for the last 50 years. It has it never had a chance of success. It never was successful. And with fentanyl, you can just having enough um, fentanyl that would fill the trunk of a car might be enough to kill the people in, in a major state in America. It's that powerful. So we need to be providing treatment, not correctional um, solutions to the drug epidemic in this country. And we need to, the only way we're going to ever reduce the number of overdose um, deaths from fentanyl is by providing easy access to treatment. So is there also another problem, though, Dr. Francis, beyond the insurance companies obstructing and not fulfilling their responsibilities and pledges? And that is that what passes for mental health care in this country is quite poor and that we really need to have higher standards of psychological care. And my understanding is that there's a shortage of clinicians as well. So could you address that? Yeah, I mean, it's the saddest thing. What, I, what I've been saying now for the last 15 years is that the worst place in the world to have a severe psychiatric illness is the United States. And this Biden initiative won't help the people who most need help because they don't have health insurance. So this country disinvested in providing care for the, the severely mentally ill most of whom, many of whom, used to be in, in large, horrible state mental hospitals. And they, uh, starting in the 60s, patients were discharged from these horrible um, so snake pit warehousing hospitals. Really, they weren't hospitals. They were more like prisons into the community. And the idea was that the money that was being spent on these hospitals would follow them into the community and they would have access to treatment and also to decent housing. Um, that happened uh, well for about 15, 20 years until the Reagan administration cut that funding and instead put it into state block grants. And the states were allowed to spend that same money any way they wanted rather than for mental health care. And most of them um, reduced taxes and eventually wound up building prisons. And so we have 650,000 people with mental health problems who are either in prison inappropriately or on the streets, causing uh, a great deal of mayhem on the streets and all sorts of societal problems because they can't get treatment because there's no place for them to live. This initiative by the Biden administration is a wonderful way of helping people with less severe problems get the treatment they need, but it won't help the people with the more severe problems because they don't have health insurance. And so there needs to be not just a uh, increase in parity, and care for people who do have insurance. There needs to be direct subsidies to take care of the people who don't. But the funding, which disappeared, we went from 10% to 4%. Part of that, a large part of that, was not having community services and, and subsidized housing for the people who discharged from hospitals. And so instead of being in hospitals, now they're on the street or in jail. And so the Biden administration has been wonderful in one way better than any administration in, in, in my um, lifetime of, of watching um, Care for Mental Health in pressing the point about parity. But it's been uh, derelict in a way in taking care of um, having federal programs for the severely ill. And when they were thinking of having infrastructure bill for um, 
human services and they did a great job of getting a bill for infrastructure physical infrastructure but they were thinking of having a human infrastructure bill that the republicans blocked that bill did not even include an infrastructure for mental health which is so desperately needed in this country so i give biden a plus better than any other administration in in my memory with the possible exception of obama but an A-plus, going back all the way to Kennedy, that was the last time there was something this good. But Kennedy and Obama was the last time anything was done for the mentally ill that was uh, worthwhile. But I, I have to worry about the fact that the country is continuing not to fund the kinds of outpatient facilities, housing facilities, and psychiatric beds. So we don't have all of these mentally ill people wandering the streets of cities and living in dungeon-like conditions in prisons. And, of course, the police end up dealing with these people, and they're not trained and equipped, and they go into the prison systems, and they end up costing the taxpayer even more than it would if they actually had psychological counsellors, you know, literally riding in the police car and had some form of treatment as opposed to prison. So, yeah, they, to... what we're doing in this country with the severely ill is not only immoral, unethical, and cruel, it's also financially stupid. It's a lot more expensive to keep someone in prison than to provide proper community treatment. And the uh, countries that do provide proper treatment in the community and, and, and adequate housing, uh, patients there are a lot healthier. If you want to make someone sicker, neglect them. So our patients in America, our severely ill in America, look more severely ill than they really are because of the consequences of neglect. And if a cop sees someone on the street or or stealing from a 7-Eleven in the United States, what happens is, because of mental illness, in the United States, what happens is the cop will more likely take them to jail than take them to the emergency room, even though they're, they're, you know, obviously having severe mental health problems. And the reason is that when the cop goes to the emergency room, he has to hang around for six to eight hours because they're so busy. And usually the patient has no place to go. The hospital has nothing they can do for them because the facilities are so lacking. So it seems like a complete waste of time. So when people become a public nuisance in a way that requires police attention, the cops do the path of least resistance and take them to, to jail instead. And once in jail, people with mental illness tend to stay longer, have more trouble. They're the ones who are most likely to wind up in solitary confinement, which can drive anyone crazy and certainly does a good job of driving people with mental illness into being much sicker. And I've seen you know, disastrous situations where cell after cell in the prison will be smeared by excrement. Patient who didn't belong in prison in solitary confinement has been made much worse. And uh, on a lesser degree, the homeless people we see on the streets are not as sick as they look. They look as sick as they do because they're not receiving treatment. And we could solve a good part of the homeless problem cheaply and cost-effectively if only we were providing um, adequate outpatient treatment and housing. One other point, why do cops kill three people a day in this country where that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world? Um, part of the problem is everyone has guns. And so a, a cop is naturally going to be scared on any call that the person he may encounter will have a gun and might be dangerous. And they've developed a kind of shoot first, ask questions later mentality. 
But this is worsened by the fact that about a third of the cough calls in the country are for mental, mentally ill people. And so with the, to not apologize for cops who do things that are terrible, but you have to understand the circumstances, the setting in which they're working. And for them, each call could be an unpredictably, unpredictable mental health problem, maybe added with a substance problem, in someone who also has a gun. And so they're, they're trigger happy, partly because we haven't provided sufficient funding and, and, and services for the severely ill, and we don't have adequate housing for them. So just in the last couple of minutes, and Dr. Francis, separate out, if you will, what Biden announced yesterday and who's going to benefit from it, from what you've just told us about who is not going to benefit and, and whose problems are not being addressed. Okay, so the, the people who have less severe problems are more likely, much more likely to have health insurance. Not, and we're the only country, developed country in the world that doesn't have universal health insurance, which is another tremendous scandal for another discussion. But in, in our country, especially because of Obamacare, most people now have some form of health insurance. And, and health insurance is meant to provide a parity of care as part of the package of, of benefits. The, those benefits have often been more theoretical than possible to, to, to utilize because the insurance companies have been so difficult setting up uh, roadblocks in order to access the care. The Biden proposal will help those people with health insurance to get care. Well, it's often all the insurance companies will be clever and will figure out ways to deny care. That's what they're in business for, to deny uh, the services that they're meant to be insuring. But this, this will make it materially more difficult for an insurance company to cheat on the people who need mental health care. It will not at all benefit the people who don't have insurance, and most of the severely mentally ill don't have insurance. So this won't help them at all. Well, Dr. Francis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for inviting me, and it's always a pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Alan Francis, who's a professor emeritus and former chair of psychiatry and behavioral science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference work, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump, now out in an updated paperback version. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining capitalism without democracy in the techno-autocracy of Saudi Arabia, headed by a macabre murderer with unlimited oil money. Was 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Quinn Slobodian, who is a professor of history at Wellesley College, where he teaches histories of modern Europe, international history, social movements, and the intellectual history of neoliberalism. He's the author of Globalists, the End of Empire, and the Birth of Neoliberalism. And his latest book is Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. And he has an article at the New Statesman, How Saudi Arabia is Buying the World. Welcome to Background Briefing, Quinn Slobodian. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, your article at the New Statesman points out that the kingdom's model of capitalism without democracy thrives and the prospect of a Saudi century has consequences for us all. But clearly it's not the only uh, example of capitalism without democracy. You have gangster capitalism in Russia, which is a mafia state uh, presided over by Putin and his cronies, and you have a really sort of militant form of capitalism in China, where state-controlled capitalism presided over by the Communist Party, which is communist only in name, and they've sort of injected patriotism into the mix where the Chinese work long hours and they're doing so to build the country, etc., while a few people get rich. So... What's different then about Saudi Arabia, and why should we be more concerned about it than the two examples I just gave you, Squin? Well, in some ways, I think it's less uh, a matter of being most concerned about them or most afraid of the Saudi model, and more just sort of realizing the unique place that Saudi Arabia currently sits in in the present conjuncture of the global economy. Um, we know that, you know, as uh, as one of the world's largest producers of oil, they remain sort of central to this carbon-driven economy that we all still live in. And what's interesting about them is that they're sort of capitalizing both on their role of providing the petroleum and the oil that is still needed for our existing economy, but they are sort of starting to think forward as well towards a kind of a, a decarbonized or a post-oil future. So they have a kind of literally a deep well of uh, resources and then the, the cash to, that goes with that in a way that is sort of unparalleled even compared to an oil an oil producing country like Russia or uh, you know a coal producing or manufacturing superpower like China the kind of asymmetry between the small size of the country relatively speaking in terms of population and their incredibly important input into the world economy puts them in in this sort of uh, role of a kind of a pivot player where everybody needs to kind of seek their favor. So that in that sense, we need to pay attention, not because it's a sort of a dire threat so much as the fact that it's just a kind of existential necessity of the current and perhaps future world economy to be able to leverage somehow Saudi favor and Saudi uh, productivity and Saudi investment money. So while they hedge in terms of oil at some point, becoming, I don't know whether it would ever be outlawed, but at a certain point, particularly if you notice the climate lately, global warming seems to be accelerating at a frightening pace. But it's an unusual situation to have this young guy uh, who has blood on his hands basically sitting on top of this pile of money, right? He controls the spigot, it seems, and he's deploying this money in ways that are both economic and geopolitical. 
in the previous Saudi leaders had always deferred to the United States and basically just sort of more or less do what they're told and we won't interfere in your internal affairs as long as you buy our arms and um, we'll protect your oil. But he seems to be, MBS seems to be sort of have broken that mold, right? Ironically, it was Trump, wasn't it, that really promoted this guy. He leapfrogged over the heir apparent that the U.S. wanted. So what's your sense of how he got to where he is? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to say is there is a kind of a historical precedent here, right? I mean, the 1970s oil crisis was, you know, initiated by a, a boycott by the Arab oil producing states, of which Saudi Arabia was a central one. And that was, a, you know, a great shock to the United States itself. It was a great shock to Western Europe, which was especially dependent on oil from the Gulf. Um, and at that time, it was for some people seen as this kind of, you know, insurrection of the poorer nations as the Arab oil producing countries. You think about the sort of the rhetoric of someone like um, Gaddafi in Libya uh, were perhaps going to use the oil weapon to usher in this so-called new international economic order. That was very quickly put back into the into the box with the quadrupling of oil prices in the 1970s. Um, and then with the Iranian revolution, the, the sort of the terms of opposition changed in the Gulf as the Saudis saw the Iranians as a, as a real sort of um, domestic or regional threat. But this idea of the Saudis sort of defying the Americans is something that has sort of cropped up periodically. I think what's interesting about the present moment is that the kind of common sense about what economic policy should be has shifted, right? You mentioned Trump, and he certainly sort of initiated it, but it must be said that Biden has sort of continued this idea that the old idea of sort of supposedly hands-off, um, arms reach, neoliberalism, within which private companies and private actors took the lead, and states only had the sort of the role of standing back and sort of creating the framework within which they could operate. I mean, if you listen to the, the utterances of top officials with the Biden administration, and indeed at the EU or the, the in the UK as well, that era has passed. So the idea of a kind of a, a forceful guiding hand on the part of the state, the return of industrial policy, the idea of sort of big heavy duty state investment projects, whether it's for infrastructure or climate transition, this is something that's now mainstream in a way that, has, that it hasn't been for decades, right? And in that sense, MBS um, is sort of a man of the moment as both a kind of high-handed authoritarian leader, but also as someone who sort of is casting aside this idea that, you know, the market will correct itself and act on its own behalf and instead pushing the idea that you, you have to have a strong hand of the state through his enormous sovereign wealth fund, the public investment fund, um, along more like the Singapore model or the Dubai model. And it's interesting to see, you know, the British Tories or even the um, Fratelli Italia in Italy under Meloni just desperately trying to emulate this model. Arguably, you could say the the IRA in, in the United States is, is, a, is a sort of a watered down version of the more, you know, muscular and written and prosperous version of this sort of state led industrial policy that someone like MBS is doing. So that so there is the kind of the question of the 
the obviously um, repellent domestic policies, suppression of dissent, the treatment of journalists like Jamal Khashoggi. But if you look at it just sort of more pragmatically from the, the point of view of economic policy, there's a way in which um, MBS is sort of a kind of a poster boy in a way for this post-neoliberal moment. And that's what I was trying to get across in the piece. Well, indeed, but I think there's not the difference between Trump's relationship with MBS and Biden's is that Biden is having to sort of swallow his words uh, <laughs> that he said he wanted to make MBS a pariah and had to do the fist bump. And it would seem pretty clear, isn't it, that MBS, along with Netanyahu in Israel, would prefer that Donald Trump come back. And I don't think in either case you could dismiss the possibility of them meddling in our elections, as the Russians have done. And it would seem, for example, we don't know about the Live Golf deal. It's 93% owned by the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, but we don't know who owns the other 7%, and there are rumors that it may be Trump. At the very least, Live is going to help Trump's golf properties, are they not? So how much do you see that as a problem here in the sense that this activist head of this country who has absolute power may well have his preferences over who becomes the next president? Yeah, I mean, you know, I would hesitate to sort of, you know, introduce a kind of a Saudi gate or the former Russia gate kind of belief that, you know, anything that happens domestically that is not to our preference must have been the result of interference by outside powers. I mean, you may be right, you may not be. I don't know about the, the plans of the Saudi intelligence services to interfere in the election. But I think what is more interesting in a way or more relevant is, is two things. One is the way that Saudi Arabia is beginning to sort of r revive a certain idea of non-alignment with the notion of acting as a kind of self-conscious swing player between Russia, China, and the United States, and then the rest of the world, so to speak. The kind of revival of the, the BRICS, um, which had been kind of moribund for years, this, this alliance of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, which Saudi Arabia is now flirting with the idea of joining, helping to, uh, helping to capitalize, um, their sort of detente with Iran suggests something, you know, uh, even larger, I think, than the interference with a single election, which is to say the emergence of, of some new version of kind of tripolarity, you know, away from, uh, from the bipolarity that um, had been developed in the last few years, or it has been developed in the sort of confrontation with Russia. So there's that. And then I think there's also, as I see it, the kind of... Um, the way that the that Saudi Arabia can sort of model a way of engaging with this climate problem that you mentioned in a way that sort of subverts our expectations. Not to say that it's better, but I think that we've gotten used to this idea of either we will have sort of global cooperation, international cooperation, you know, another successful Kyoto or Paris or no COP that actually goes well, or we will have nothing. So the only road to addressing climate crisis, to getting to an energy transition, is people sitting down from the leadership of all the world's nations and coming to some kind of binding agreement. 
Well, that hasn't been working very well, right? I mean, we've been a couple of decades at just failed attempts at doing that, high-flown rhetoric, everyone just walking back on their promises, no one's keeping to their actual targets, even the ones who are giving lip service to them. What I think you can see in the big push of something like Saudi Arabia towards like green hydrogen or building a domestic electrical vehicle industry is something that sort of looks like what the United States is doing in their in their competition with China. They're funding domestic products. They're, they're reshoring things, not in the spirit of sort of global cooperation, but actually in the spirit of competition and even geopolitical and geoeconomic competition with this rival of, of China. So there might be another way of getting to, you know, breakthrough technologies and sort of the, the machinery of the just energy transition that isn't everyone sitting down at the table and agreeing. And we may not like that. We may find it dangerous. And I know I certainly do. It's, it's, to me, it's scary to court war with China to get some more subsidies for solar panels. But, you know, there, I think it's worth using Saudi example as a provocation to ask whether in a kind of a, a realist world of powers that ultimately don't see reasons to cooperate with each other, that the spirit of competition, even the threat of military confrontation, might be something that paradoxically helps to move us towards lower um, carbon emissions. And that's not something I necessarily uh, endorse, but I think it's something we should be able to, you know, flex our minds to embrace the possibility of. Well, Biden's climate envoy, John Kerry, did meet with the Chinese recently in the hopes that they could work together in the way that you were just describing. Obviously, the quickest way to get off fossil fuels, and particularly gasoline in the United States, would be a gas tax. That's how they got rid of cigarette addiction, uh, was by taxing cigarettes, and that seems to have worked. But that's politically impossible because politicians don't want to raise taxes. But that seems to be the most logical way to speed up the transition. What is but what that's are the, on the other hand, that's how Emmanuel Macron got the you know the Gilets Jaunes revolt in France precisely by doing that, right? Because it's a regressive tax that hits right. poor people harder and people from rural communities. So it seems like you know, politically suicidal, right? But what, what are the Saudis doing that, that's going to work? I mean, obviously, they've got more money than God, as Donald Trump recently pointed out. Well, yeah, there's definitely no kind of spirit of, like, restraint or um, austerity. Um, they have raised prices on gasoline domestically in such a way that they've felt it politically uh, necessary to kind of compensate um, their citizens with more transfers and more kind of welfare benefits. One of the things that I discovered while researching the piece uh, in talking to experts in the region is that, that Saudi Arabia is actually has a lot of poverty. It has a lot of what one expert I spoke to described as hidden poverty and hidden because they don't provide statistics on, on um, domestic wealth and income to um, the international authorities. It's a bit of a uh, sort of a dirty domestic secret. So in that sense, it has it's different from the Emirates, where you have a much higher sort of average wealth amongst the small number of citizens who live there. Um, so the Saudi the Saudi model is sort of rather than um, restraint or austerity or 
or energy conservation, a kind of a both end approach, right? So continue to pump and, and sometimes even pump and produce more oil than um, the Americans want them to be producing, you know, when the, when the U.S. wants to be controlling and regulating the prices more. So there is no problem with full, you know, basically full speed on um, continued drilling and, and exploration and extraction. But then also, I would say a kind of a gambling on a technical fix, right? So that lots of money in desalination, lots of money on the hope for kind of breakthrough technologies and things like um, green hydrogen in particular. So there's this there's this gamble really that you can as far as as long as the the pumps are still flowing and there hasn't been something like what you described, which is, you know, some kind of a global um, prohibition of, let's say, new internal combustion engines, which is, is not off the table, certainly in Europe. Um, then as long as they have that money, you know, spend as much of it as they can while the, you know, make hay while the sun shines. As another expert friend of mine put it, it is a gamble because if oil falls below $80 a barrel suddenly, they do not have this kind of wealth that they're currently, you know, throwing around and putting at the bottom of contracts, um, one after the other after the other. But the scale of it at the moment, the scale of the promises is really sort of eye-watering. Um, I mentioned in the piece that, you know, there's been all of these news stories about Live Golf and the acquisition of, you know, these sort of headline superstars like Cristiano Ronaldo. But we're talking there about, you know, the live golf thing, something in the range of a billion dollars. And the month where that was going down, they were signing contracts for things, you know, 10 times as much as that, 20 times as much as that contracts with um, South Korean countries, Italian countries, Italian companies to build out petrochemical facilities to do domestic ED production with both an American company, Lucid, and um, a Chinese company. So the kind of the, what the Germans would call like a kind of a watering can principle is they're just sort of, you know, they're they're signing contracts all over the place. They're building things offshore. The Chinese are building steel plants in their first steel plant in Saudi Arabia itself, offshore from China. And so there's a kind of hyperactive, frenetic level of activity that I think that in a time where you know, in the United States, it can take several years to get like a single subway station built. Um, we're used to seeing that level of hyperactivity in China. China is obviously in a sort of a slowdown mode now. And for good reason, I think eyes should be on Saudi Arabia, because with interest rates rising, this is one of the few places that companies, sovereign wealth, sovereigns and and um, politicians are going to try to get some money for investment. So just in closing, though, Quinn, do you not think that personalities of world leaders are important? I mean, obviously, particularly when they have seem to have absolute power, as is the case with MBS. He personally seems to like Putin and admire him, and he certainly doesn't like Biden. He really likes Trump, and he certainly likes the son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who he gave between two, some people say it was actually $5 billion. So here he is presiding over a country that you just mentioned has hidden poverty while he has a diamond-studded Mercedes and spends a half a billion dollars on a Leonardo da Vinci painting, etc. And based upon what happened with 9-11, we just don't know the extent to which there's a kind of hidden contempt for America 
that's harbored amongst the Saudis, whether it's in the royal family or not, or just amongst the bin Laden types, it's hard to know. So just in closing, what's your reading on how important the personalities of these leaders are, particularly when they're dictators? I mean, I think the personalities do matter, but I think they still operate within kind of, you know, structural constraints. I mean, that's that was true in democracies, clearly, right? When Biden entered office with a certain mandate, he was only able to sort of achieve a sliver of that because of the constraints of the two-party system and the Supreme Court after that. Um, in in Saudi Arabia, obviously, there isn't this sort of same model of checks and balances, but they're still sort of constrained in different ways by the relationship to the United States, by the global investment climate. Um, and you see them sort of, MBS sort of making those choices, right? I mean, the ramping down of the war in Yemen um, because it was not going anywhere, it was unpopular, it was sort of making the relationship with Iran even worse. I think there's, it's also not helpful to sort of think about leaders, even in um, environments like Saudi Arabia, as having absolute power. I think that it's maybe more helpful to think of someone like MBS as sort of um, animated by a sort of a fleet of consultants who come out of the same business schools that, you know, many people perhaps even listening to this radio station do, came from Harvard Business School, Wharton. There was a huge push to send Saudis to the United States for our training in the early 2000s. And now they've come back and they're saying, what are the sites of investment? Um, what, are the, what are the places that are going to pay off in the short and the medium term? And the fact that it's being presided over by a person who, you know, a lot of people find um, repellent is makes him no better or worse than your average CEO to them, right? So I think that, you know, it's it's helpful to think about things like this maybe more in terms of the drawbacks of corporate governance and governing a country like a company more than, than um, the idea of absolute power concentrated in the hands of one person. I think that's maybe his own fantasy of himself. I talk a lot about the kind of Black Panther um, analogy in the piece, but I think that um, we should also keep our eye on the larger structures and not focus too much on the individual. Well, Quinn Slobodian, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Sing something to me.